morning. I know that um, Randy just prayed, but we're going to pray again. Um, I need, I need to, I need God's help this morning. So let's ask him for it. Father, um, God, I need to, I need to hear from you this morning, Lord. We need, we need to hear from you. And so I pray, Father, that you would speak to us. You would speak to us through your word. Lord, you know how I've struggled with this text over the past week, Lord, and I've struggled with understanding, and I've struggled with application, God, but it's you who gives understanding. And so I pray this morning, God, as we consider your word, Father, I pray that you would give all of us understanding, Lord. I pray that as you give us understanding, Father, that you would also give us application, Lord. You would enable us to apply it to our lives, Father, that you would do that work in us and through us, Father, that you would do it first for your glory, second for our good. We love you, Lord, and we thank you and we praise you for your grace and for your mercy. In Christ's name and for his sake, we ask these things. Amen. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Today we will conclude, if you will, um, this three-part series on James chapter 1. We began in verse 19 in November, and then today we will conclude with verse 27. Not only will it conclude this um, three-part uh, three series, um, but it will also conclude the first chapter of James. Um, if you did not get an outline, it's a very small outline, uh, Brett has some in the back, and I think he's going to just kind of walk around. So if you want something to write on to take notes as Brett walks by, just kind of flag him down. Um, again, today's text specifically, we'll be looking at 26 and 27 of chapter 1. However, I'm going to be again reading in 19, and we'll just quickly review, give you the overall outline, if you will, of what we've considered starting in 19 up through 27. Starting in verse 19, chapter 1. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The first, the first point that we looked at was from chapter 19 through 21, and it was to receive the word. It was to receive the word. That was 19 through 21. And then last month, we considered 22 through 25, which was to 
respond to the word, right? He said to be doers of the word. Today we'll consider 26 and 27, which is to reflect the word. So again, it was receive the word, respond to the word, and today we will consider reflecting the word. See, we were commanded in 22, and I'll read verse 22 again. He said, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Prove yourselves doers. Be a doer. Do what it says. We were commanded to respond to the word. So what does that look like? What does a true response, a genuine response look like? What, what is do? What does do look like? What is the nature of do? That's what James addresses here in verses 26 and 27. He says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Religious. The Greek word for religious is thraiskos. It simply means external rituals, routines, and ceremonies. It's practices. It's doing. Now, by the one doing these things, there is, if you will, a placement of spiritual value on the doing, on these religious acts, right? Um, Considering them acts of worship. So James says, you, you think you're religious, right? Not that you are, but he says, you think you're religious. You think what you're doing is a, a spiritual act of worship. He says, but yet, if you fail to bridle your tongue. Now, for a minute, if you would think with me of a, of a bridle, right? It's a harness that fits over a horse's head, right? Some of you I know have horses, right? You put this harness over its head, and there's this metal rod, right? A bit that goes into the mouth of the horse. On the sides of the bit, there's some rings. Attached to the rings are, are reins, right? Leather straps that is used to what? It's control the horse, right? Make it go left, right? Stop, back up, right? So the bridle or to bridle means to simply control in the context of what James is saying here. He says, you think you're religious and yet you don't bridle, you don't control your tongue, right? He's talking about your, what, your speech, what's coming out of your mouth, referring to maybe inappropriate language. Maybe speaking before thinking. Think back to verse 19 real quick. He says, what, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak. And in that context, James was talking about, if you recall a couple months ago, he was talking about those who what, uh, presume to speak for God and yet do so hastily. They do so without thinking. They do so without care or without concern. Failure to control speech also can result or, or be the result of what? Of harshness towards other, maybe, maybe critical and, and derogatory language towards other. this is what others this is what James is addressing here. So, so you think you're religious, you think you're doing, right? You were just commanded to do, and you think you're doing is spiritual act of worship, 
yet, if you fail to control what comes out of your mouth. Now, this unbridled speech that James is addressing here was obviously an issue in the first century church. And we know this because, one, he, well, he addresses it in verse 19 of chapter 1. He addresses it again here in verse 26 of chapter 1. Chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Chapter 4, 11 and 12. He addresses it yet again. So it's recurring in this letter. So we know it was an obvious issue in the early church. right? And, and we know in our lives, folks, that it's an obvious issue today as well. Turn with me, if you would, just over two chapters to chapter 3, 1 through 12, um, where I think he gives a, a, a good kind of explanation of the tongue. Chapter 3, 1 through 12. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. So right there real quick in verse 2, there's a connection between what? A, a bridled tongue and a bridled body. So with an unbridled tongue, we would assume that there would be a connection, most likely with an unbridled body or actions is what he's referring to. Verse 3. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. This was an obvious issue that the first century church was dealing with. I think if all of us were honest and fair, it would be an obvious issue that we would, or we do deal with as well. But what does this say? What does this unbridled speech say about a person? Really, what does, what does the unbridled speech reflect about that person. Lack of self-control? Absolutely, it does. Lack of spiritual maturity? Yes. Sin? Yes, it, it is sin, right? It is, right? An unbridled tongue, lack of self-control, lack of spiritual maturity. That's, that's sin in our lives. And, and remember, this, this text, James is talking to believers. He is dr- addressing primarily believers. Turn with, me, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 through 37. Either make the tree good and its fruits good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. This is you brood of vipers. How can you bring evil? Speak what is good. Being evil, speak what is good. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you, that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. So what, is, what does this reflect? What does the unbridled tongue reflect about a person? It reflects the condition of the heart. You see, the mouth, what one says is a window to one's heart. So the issue that James is dealing with, it's deeper than just a person's speech. And he says that you think you're religious, and yet you don't bridle your tongue. Right? You don't control what comes out of your mouth. But there's a deeper issue here than just unbridled speech, right? It's dealing with an issue of the heart. See, if the heart is right, speech will be right. But if the speech is not right, then the heart is not right. And if the heart is not right, then this brings into question the motives behind one's religion, behind one's doing. See, James commands to do, right? Verse 22, right? Don't just hear the word. Deceive yourself, right? Just do what it says. That's God, okay, commanding us to do that. And I know I say that a lot. Well, James tells us here. Paul says over here, right? But let's just remind ourselves, right, that that's God telling us, okay? So he says to do, and, and when he says to do, he really anticipates, I, I think, a response. And this is the response that he anticipates. He anticipates people to say, well, I, I am a doer. See, I do, these, I do these things. This is why he goes right into 22 and says, you think you're religious. Because he knows when he tells people to do, they're going to say, well, I am religious. I do. I, I am a doer. I do these things, right? I, I go to church, you know. I go to church. I, I give... An offering? I serve over here, or I, I serve over there, and I pray, right? I am a doer. I'm religious. I mean, you just told us to do. It's like when you tell your kids to do something, right? Those of you who have children, you know what I'm talking about. You say, son, I want you to do this. I know, dad. I do that. Well, if you did one, why would I be telling you to do that, you know? All right. James was, I think, anticipating that same response. I am a doer, and that's why he says this. So you think you're religious, right? You, you think you are a doer, but you're not. You're not a doer because there's these inconsistencies in your life, these hypocrisies or this hypocrisy about you, if you will. So you're telling me that you're a doer, and yet you're failing to control what? The words that come out of your mouth. You see, there's sin in your heart. There's sin in your heart, James says, and he says it's coming out of your mouth. It's showing out of your mouth. See, the condition of your heart fails to line up with your actions. And this is the, the problem that James is addressing, the issue, the concern that James is addressing in 26. Now, this hypocrisy of doing, if you will, okay, 
It's not so much a, a pharisaical hypocrisy that James is addressing, where you, your, your religion you're doing, you think you're doing, right? I, I do believe, again, he is addressing believers here, okay? So they're not doing because they think that they're justifying themselves, uh, salvifically speaking, before God, that my doing is, is, is an act of, of um, or an act that will, what, save me. No, it's not that. But their doing is more so out of duty than it is devotion. I think it's a legalistic um, religion or legalistic doing that James is seeing in this hypocrisy, right? Where they're saying one thing over here, professing to be a Christian. I am a Christian. I, I am religious. I do. And then yet over here, there's these inconsistencies with what they say. So this, this doublespeak. And when we see that, well, we see that in our own lives. I hope we do. I hope we recognize it. I hope if it's there that God would convict us of it and bring us to repentance over it. Um, but we also see it in others' lives as well. And we see it all the time, and in, in, in I think on TV with some of the, 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 the televangelists and other preachers where they'll say they believe this. Well, the Bible says this, and I believe it. And then in another message or sermon or talk to someone else, they say something that completely contradicts it, right? This inconsistency, this hypocrisy about them. There's also this, this issue, I think, that he's saying, seeing where, where, you know, I am religious because I do this. Like I said, I come to church, I give my tithe, I do all these things over here, and then that person goes out from here and they do something that completely contradicts what they do over here. See, James was going after the obvious. The obvious was this, right? You're saying one thing, and then you're obviously saying something else. Or by your speech, it's obvious that there's this, this, this issue of the heart here. There's something that's not lining up. But here's the thing. It's not always obvious, right? The issues of the heart aren't always obvious. I think the, the mouth, right? The mouth is a window to the heart. And I think it's probably the greatest indicator that there is, especially outward. The greatest outward indicator that there is, the condition of someone's heart. However, we know that sometimes we could have bridled speech, but that doesn't mean we have a bridled heart, right? They, their actions seem right, maybe. Maybe I shouldn't say they, maybe should I say I. My actions seem right. Maybe my speech is, is right, but my heart is still not right. He continues, he says, if anyone thinks he is religious, and yet does not what, bridle his own tongue, but deceives his own heart. You see, the one who thinks himself religious, the one who thinks he's a doer, he's not. And yet he's deceived. He's self-deceived. Again, this person is deceived into thinking that his or her doing is a spiritual act of worship. So here's what James says about this person's religion. Their doing, if you will. Their spiritual acts of worship. He says worthless. It's absolutely worthless. Your religion you're doing. It's worthless. It has no value. It is vain. It's nothing more than religious fluff. Think if you will about Cain and Abel for a minute. Genesis chapter four. We won't we won't turn there. But recall Cain and Abel, right? Cain the older brother. Abel obviously the younger. They both brought an offering before God, right? 
Cain brought what? Fruits of the ground or uh, vegetables, probably, you know, fruit, produce, something along that line. Brought that before God as an offering, right? So what did Abel bring? Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, right? And I think scripture says in fat portions. So they both brought offerings before God, right? We could consider that, right? What religious acts doing, okay? And yet, the Bible tells us that God regarded Abel's offering, right? Looked upon it favorably, accepted it, and yet Cain's offering, he didn't regard. He didn't look upon it favorably. He did not accept it. Now, was that because God doesn't like produce or vegetables or fruit or whatever it was that, that Cain brought him? Well, no, that's not the case at all, right? It's not that he favor, favors meat over, over veggies. It had nothing <laughs> to do with that whatsoever. Turn with me to 1 John 3, 12. First John three twelve. Well, we'll just read three eleven just since it kind of bleeds into twelve. Um, it says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. And his brothers were what they were, righteous. See, God rejected Cain's offering, rejected his religion, his doing as worthless, just like James is addressing here, as worthless, why? Because of the condition of what Cain's heart and that offering. It was, it was evil. His motives were not pure. They were not right. Whereas Abel's were. This is what James is addressing here. He says, your religion, you think you are religious with an impure heart. I tell you, your religion, your deeds, your doing as you were commanded in verse 22, says it's worthless. Absolutely worthless. Spiritually speaking, of no value. Now, now listen, I do, I do want to say this. We know that God still uses our worthless acts to glorify himself, right? I mean, we, we understand that, okay? That's not what James is addressing here, though, okay? What he's saying is that your, your religion, right, from an impure heart, spiritually, as far as you are concerned, is absolutely worthless, okay? Verse 20, 27, chapter 1, James. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So in 26, James addresses worthless religion, right? What, what doing is not, basically, or the commanded doing of 22, verse 22, is not. And in verse 27, he's going to tell us what the doing is. You've just been commanded in verse 22 to do. Now I'm going to show you what it looks like. We just saw what it's not, okay? Now let's see what it is. It's just pure and undefiled. It's clean, it's uncontaminated. It's clean from your self-deceit, right? Uncontaminated with your hypocrisy. This is the do. Now, if you would recall, when we first began James, I think it was in June, right? We said that the theme of this letter was faith 
that works, right? James proclaims in this entire text, James proclaims works as a result and evidence of faith and not the root of faith. So faith that works is in part the pure and undefiled doing of the word. Now this pure and undefiled religion, this this doing, what we're commanded to do, what we were commanded to do in verse 22, not just listen and deceive ourselves, but do what it says. This should encompass the whole of what we do, always, constantly. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, everything that we do, everything about our lives as believers should glorify God. That which glorifies God is what? It's pure. It's undefiled, right? The doing of the word. Now back in verse 27. It says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. In the sight of our God and Father. What he's doing is he's setting God up as the standard for right doing. Okay? Pure and undefiled religion, right? God is the standard of right religious acts, if you will. Okay? It's easy sometimes to look at maybe another family, right? Um, another individual, and to see their externals and kind of set them up as the standard and say, oh, well, look at how that family is. I wish my family was like that, okay? I wish we did what they did, and you're setting up them as the standard of righteousness or right living or right acts, or maybe it's not a a family, maybe it's a person. Oh, look at him. I want to do what he does. One, you're just setting up yourself for a legalistic standard when you, when you get the standard from men and not from God. So that's what James simply just sets up here is that the standard of, of religion, right? The standard of the doing is God. We get it from, from the word. Ultimately, the standard is God, right? He is the standard, but the standard, him, is, is revealed to us through Scripture. He says the pure and undefiled religion. This is God's standard, James is about to say. Pure and undefiled, right, religion is this. It's doing in this way. It's to visit widows or orphans, sorry, and widows in their distress. Now, the meaning of this phrase has been completely lost in translation. Now, it's not to visit as we think of visit. Oh, to visit orphans and widows? I can do that, you know. I'll pop in at the, the, the nursing home on the way home from church and, you know, uh, just have a quick chat with some of, the, some of the old folks there, you know, some of the widows there and get my bases covered, right? Or we'll, we'll swing by the orphanage, which I don't think we have one in town, but we'll, we'll swing by the orphanage, play a quick game of checkers, right? And we'll visit them. I mean, that's, you know, that's what he says. And we'll just kind of help them out here. And that'll, that'll be good. And then I'll get my bases covered, right? No. That's not what James is saying. Actually, when you, and I'm not even going to try, but when you, when you compare like the Greek text to the English in this verse, there really is no comparison. Like sometimes if you do like a word for word comparison, it's pretty close, but there's absolutely no comparison in, in this text, okay? So, so the translation is completely off. Here's what, what it means. Here's what James is saying, right? This visiting, it's not visiting, okay? What it is, it's, it's taking care of. 
right? It's looking after and it's providing for the needs of. That has nothing to do with what we think of visiting. No, this is like, all right, we recognize that there is this great need here, right? Orphans and widows. And so what James is commanding us to do is actually take care of them, meet their needs as if they were your own family and you're seeking to meet the needs of your children. You see, the neediest segment of society um, in the first century was orphans and widows. See, there was no DHS, right? Um, There was no foster care system. There were no social programs, no social security. If, If you were a child and your mom and dad died and you had no other family and there was no wealth in that family, then that was it. You had, you had nothing. There was no system to take you in that would place you in homes or provide you a monthly stipend or whatever the case might be. You were alone with absolutely nothing. There were no life insurance policies. You know, if you were a widow and your husband passed away and there was no children to take care of you, or maybe there were children and maybe they, they just weren't taking care of you, then again, there was absolutely nothing. So James places the burden, God places the burden on the church, us, to, 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 to provide for them. So what about, what about the orphans and the widows in our society today, right? I mean, we have these social programs, you know, and, and I think sometimes these social programs kind of mask the needs that are out there, right? Maybe we want them we want to pretend that it doesn't exist, right? But we do, we do have orphans in our society today, don't we? We do. We've got a community just on the, the east side of town, right? McCall's, right? That, that to a degree is full of orphans. Now, now listen, McCall's is, is, uh, is, 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 is a wonderful institution, if we must call it that, right? Because it does fill a need in society because there are some people who have these physical and mental limitations that have to have specialized care around the clock. And so I absolutely support McCall's in that and what they do, okay? And there are are some families that send their loved ones there because they know that they physically are incapable of taking care of them. And yet while their loved ones are there, they still take care of them. They still visit them and provide for them and love them. And yet there are many people there that are absolutely just completely thrown away. And they are forgotten. They are unloved. They are unwanted. They are considered worthless and for the most part dead. And so we have in our society today here, Ada, we've got orphans and widows. And we know we have it in in, in DHS with with foster cares and nursing homes with with other needs. But here's the thing. Right, we said that James said to visit, right? To look after, to take care of, to provide for the needs of, right? We do need to understand that we are commanded to this. And now there's a deeper issue that James is getting here, just like it got to in, in chapter 26, and we're going to get to that deeper issue. But I, I don't want to neglect this command because it is a command. We are to look after the needy, all right? The outcast, the poor, the destitute. We are to do that. So we don't want to just completely gloss over that as we get to this, this kind of deeper issue, okay? We understand that we're to do so, to visit. I'll use the term generically here. To visit, we are to do so in whatever manner God enables us and to whomever has genuine need. Matthew chapter 25. 
Matthew 25, 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the goats from the sheep. And he will put the sheep, the believers, followers of Christ, on his right, the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So we are, we are commanded to visit. Okay, We are commanded to provide for, to care for, to look after those in need as God enables us to. And we understand that the enabling is different, right? There are some people that can physically take people in like that and physically care for them in, in that way, financially care for them in that way. And we know others that might be limited financially, even physically themselves for taking care. It might just be simply stopping by for a visit just to let them know that you love them and you care for them, maybe to bring them something, to do something for them. 1 John three sixteen through 17. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So one, right, commanded to visit, but also here in 1 John, John tells us what, that there is to be an emphasis on the body, right? There is to be an emphasis on providing for the needs within the body, the widows, the orphans. Now this text isn't, uh, 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 primarily James again, isn't addressing how we provide for widows and how we provide for orphans. We know that we are commanded to do so, right? As believers, as a church. Again, we don't want to gloss over that command as we get to the deeper issue that James is addressing in this text. Now, verse 17 again of 1 John. Oops. Let me turn back to it. Again, 3.17, he says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in needs and closes his heart, closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? See, providing for is a reflection of God's love. It's a reflection of a changed heart. So in chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 26, right, James makes it a heart issue, right? 
He does the same thing here in 27. He turns it into a heart issue, right? The visiting, the taking care of, the providing for, right? That's not the deeper issue, deeper issue, right? That's just kind of the surface. That's just kind of what's coming out. But the deeper thing, it's, it's the heart. It's the condition of the heart. It's the desire of the heart. It's the doing, if you will, from the heart as a result of a changed heart. So pure religion, right? Again, he said pure and undefiled religion is this. It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress. You to understand this, though, that pure religion, the doing of the word, is not just simply to visit, not just simply to provide for, to look after, or to take care of those in need. There's another aspect to it. And again, it's the changed heart behind the doing. See, James 1.27 is often, I believe, an abused and misapplied passage of Scripture. Many will use 27a, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Many will use that, right? They'll they'll forget about the last part of 27, and they'll look at that first part of 27, and and they'll use that to, to say this is the greatest mission of the church, Right? Because it says pure and undefiled religion. I mean, pure religion, pure doing is, is taking care of orphans and widows. So this, this whole social justice thing, I mean, that's the main mission of the church, and that's what we're about, and that's as a church where we've got to go out, and we've got to do that and focus most of our energy and most of our effort on that. Well, by proclaiming that is the greatest mission of the church, right? You, you proclaim the greatest need of humanity. That's a physical need. If you're saying that our greatest mission as a church is meeting man's physical needs, then in the same turn, you're proclaiming that their greatest need is actually a physical need. I mean, we know that's not true, right? We know that the greatest need of man is what? It's a spiritual need, right? Matthew 8, 36, right? What profiteth the man if he, what, gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Now, most who find themselves in that position, right? I, I think of the emerging church myself, right, who are big on the whole social justice issue, right, will, will be, be quick to tell you, oh, no, 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 we're not saying that their greatest need is, is, is physical. We know that it's spiritual, but yet by their actions, in their failure to address the spiritual needs of man, they what? They proclaim that their greatest need is physical. And their religion is worthless. Their doing is Worthless. What is the greatest? What is the greatest act or demonstration of love? What is the greatest act of love? John fifteen thirteen. Greater love. Has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, when Jesus said that, right, he wasn't talking about the guy in the foxhole who was going to jump on the grenade and, 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 and take one for the team, okay? Jesus was talking about what he was about to do for us. So the greatest act of love was what God, becoming man, paying our penalty for sin. 
right? Suffering the full wrath of God deserved for us. It's the greatest, greatest act of love. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Just to reiterate this point, so we're, we're, we're clear on what the greatest act and demonstration of love was. Five, six. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? The wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The greatest act of love was what Christ did for us. The greatest act of love can be proclaimed by us through proclaiming the gospel. See, our outward acts of compassion, this visiting that we are commanded to do, they must be motivated in our lives by the gospel. And they must be clothed in the gospel. Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is lauded and praised, right, by many evangelical Christians as an example of James 1.27 lived out. She had a life of selfless giving and taking care and visiting the poor, right, the orphaned, the widowed, the needy. I've read several books by evangelical Christians who love to put quotes in their books by Mother Teresa when it comes to talking about serving. Maybe, maybe in the context of James 1.27. Oh, wait, this is great. Okay, we're talking about, we're talking about, right, visiting the poor, the orphan, the widow. We're talking about, you know, meeting their needs and doing everything. So this, this quote by Mother Teresa is awesome. Let's just throw that in there because she's, she's a saint, right? Well, I want to read to you something by Mother Teresa. Two, two quotes here, then I'll just read together. She said, there's only one God. I'll agree with that now. Um, There is only one God, and he is God to all. Therefore, it is important that everyone is seen as equal before God. I've always said we should help a Hindu become a better Hindu, a Muslim become a better Muslim, and a Catholic become a better Catholic. Then in her book, she says, we never try to convert those who receive aid from missionaries of charity to Christianity, but in our work we bear witness to the love of God's presence. And if Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, or agnostics become for this better men, simply better, we will be satisfied. It matters to the individual what church he belongs to. If that individual thinks and believes that this is the only way to God for her or him, this is the way God comes into their life, his life, if he does not know any other way 
and if he has no doubt so that he does not need to search, then this is his way of salvation. See, Mother Teresa denies the exclusivity of Christ. The Christ that she believed in, at least according to these quotes, was a false Christ. It was not the Christ, was not the Jesus of the Bible who, who saves. See, all of Mother Teresa's doing, all of her religion, all of those good things that she did, according to James 1.26, it's absolutely worthless. Wasn't done, wasn't done out of a, a changed heart, a regenerated heart. Ultimately, she did nothing more than love all of those people straight to hell. Let's assume for a minute, if you would, that you were a physician. And you were, and I'm talking to believers here, right? Mother Teresa, I don't put in that category, but I'm talking to you. Assume that you're a physician. And as a physician, you had recently been cured of cancer. And you, you knew, having been cured of cancer, you knew what the cure for cancer was. Now, being a physician and having the cure for cancer, you notice some people around you, in your world, in your life, that actually have cancer as well, and they're, they're dying because of the cancer that they have. So as a physician, you reach out to them, and you reach out to them to make their life better. You know, I mean, it's miserable being sick. It's no fun with a disease like that, uncomfortable. And so you reach out to them, and you clothe them, and you feed them, and you make them comfortable. And yet you never share that cure for cancer with them. The most unloving thing you could ever do is that right there. Have the cure, right? Have the gospel and reach out to someone and yet never share the gospel with them. You see, many in evangelical Christianity, and I, I think probably most of us have been guilty of this at some time, if not now, we visit. We have religion, right? According to first. 27, we visit according to 27, and yet our doing, our acts, our religion actually falls under verse 26, and it's worthless. So James isn't saying, and I want you to understand this, he isn't saying that pure religion is just simply visiting, right? Reaching out, meeting the needs of those around us who have needs. No, but pure religion is this. It's a practicing of God's word, doing pure religion, Visiting, it's a practicing of God's word as a reflection of a heart changed by his word. So it's a practicing of God's word. It's a doing as a reflection of a heart changed by his word. And James tells us this. He tells us this in 27b. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You see, the external is to be a reflection of the internal. The external do visit the orphans, the widows, right? Pure and undefiled religion, right? But it's a result of the internal, the heart, keeping oneself unstained by the world. It's an issue of the heart. 
We are to be set apart from the world, right? Pure, unstained. We are to desire this. As believers, we are to desire this. 1 John 2.15-17. through 17. John tells us, God tells us, through John. He says, do not, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So the desire of our hearts should be that we want to be more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. What the world loves, what the world desires, what the world lives for, what the world wants, should not be what we love and should not be what we desire, should not be what we look like, live like, want. James isn't commanding sinless perfection, right? We know that's not possible. The side of heaven, we'll never see that, right? But again, he's, he's addressing the heart. What is, your, what is your motivation, right? Are you motivated to do the word out of duty just because you think you have to, just because the Bible says to do it, right? And we know, those of us who are parents, we know sometimes we, we walk a fine line, when we correct our kids who are unbelievers, right? Duty versus devotion, right? That's what James is talking about. Or do you do? Is your religion, is your doing of the word, is it motivated by a devotion to Christ, a desire for Christ, a desire to reflect the grace in your life that he bestowed upon you? Now these verses... 26 and 27, it's, it's not about us examining the religion of someone else. I mean, there's a place and time for that. Considering Mother Teresa, I think it's absolutely appropriate in the context of, of this verse because there are many who abuse 27, the mission of the church, if you would, right? But ultimately, it's not about us examining someone else's religion. It's about us examining our own says, you've just been commanded to do. I just commanded you to do, and you say you do. But what is the nature of your? What is the nature of your do? What is the nature of your religion? What's the condition of your heart? Is your religion, is your doing, is it merely lip service because your heart proclaims something else, or does it truly reflect the condition of your heart? I've struggled with this all week because I know my inconsistencies. I know my hypocrisies. I know, I know when I do because I, I truly want to do and I do so out of devotion. And I know when I do because I fear merely obligated to do. I want to be unstained by the world. I do. I don't want to love what the world loves. I don't want to want what the world wants. I don't want to live like the world, look like the world, talk like the world. But here's the problem. Here's my problem at least. I can't do it. I see these inconsistencies, uh, and I don't, I don't like them. Randy and I talked about this week. I don't want them, but, but they're there. 
I want to overcome them. I can't. So what does this do? It drives me to the one who can. Drives me to the cross. Because I'm incapable, but Christ, he is capable. Let's pray. Father, I, um, Lord, I want to do. God, I, I want to be a doer of the word. I don't want to just merely hear it and deceive myself. Lord, I want to do what it says, and I want to do what it says. Have a pure heart, Father, with right, with right motives. God, I want that for me. Lord, I want that for your church, Father, for us, Lord. I want us to be doers. I want our doing, God, to be pure and undefiled. God, we can't, we can't do it apart from you, apart from your working in our life. Father, you're doing it in us and doing it through us. So God, I pray, I pray one for conviction, Father, because I, I fall short all the time. Lord, I know we fall short all the time, Lord. And I pray that when we do, God, you would convict us, Father, because it's sin and it's our sin and we own it. Lord, I pray that you would convict us and I pray, Father, that you would grant us, even as believers, that you would grant us continued repentance and faith and trust in you, Father, because you, you can do it. So then I pray, Father, that you would do it, Lord that you would enable us, you would through us, Father, right, enable us to be doers, pure and undefiled religion, Father, that we would do and we would do so out of devotion and out of desire. We love you, God, and we praise you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we don't, we don't deserve it. We deserve your wrath. And yet, you loved us so much to save us from your wrath. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name, God, for his sake, for his glory.